Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So I want to talk to you all a bit about BetterHelp. As a licensed therapist, I'm a huge advocate of mental health awareness and truly believe in providing affordable counseling services to anyone, anywhere, especially those who may not have access to it otherwise. There's so many places in the U.S. and around the world that can make it so difficult to find affordable counseling services. And let's be honest, if you live in a more rural area, you may not even know a counselor or maybe there isn't one in your area. Maybe you just don't really have a support system around you who understands mental health and you really just want to talk to someone. This is why I love BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online mental health healing platform that provides online counseling and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional counseling done securely online and is available worldwide. What's even better is that there are so many different licensed counselors who specialize in all different areas on BetterHelp, whether you're struggling with anxiety, depression, are having relationship issues, maybe you're having panic attacks or you're having work stress. BetterHelp makes it so easy to log into your account at any time, contact your therapist directly, and the therapists are available with thoughtful responses at any time, and you can schedule as many weekly video or phone sessions as you'd like. Now, as a therapist, I know it's not always possible to find the right therapist for your needs the very first time. So the awesome thing about BetterHelp is it's made it so easy to facilitate a therapeutic match that's right for you. But if you don't find a connection with your first counselor, there's no charge to change counselors if you ever need to. And there's also financial aid available to anyone who's looking for payment options. There was one woman that actually slid into my DMs the other day, just thanking me so much for telling her about BetterHelp and the code that I have, which I'll give you in a second. And here's what she said about her counselor. She wrote, I love my BetterHelp therapist. I wish everyone I knew could get support they need from her. She consistently provides great insights, shares helpful tools, and validates my feelings and experiences in a way that has helped me heal and improve my life in a tangible way. She's responsive, kind, and engaging, everything you would hope a therapist would be. I mean, how amazing does that sound? So anyway, I have a special offer for all of you. Sign up with BetterHelp today and receive 10% off your first month of therapy. Just visit betterhelp.com slash anxiety healer. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash anxiety healer, and start your healing journey today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anxiety Anxiety Chicks podcast. Excuse me. I don't think I've ever done that. The Anxiety Chicks podcast. 
I'm Allison Sepinara. And Taylor is out this week, but don't worry. I have an amazing guest on today that a lot of you that follow me on Instagram, Instagram probably, I can't talk today. I don't know what's going on. Anyone else? Um, but anyone that's on Instagram might uh, know this other healer expert in anxiety. Uh, his handle is the anxious, oh, okay, it's the anxious truth, the dot anxious dot truth. And I think on TikTok also, are you the anxious yeah. truth? Without the dots. Without Maybe. the dots. Yeah. Somebody had, okay. had without the dots on Instagram before me. So I put the dots in on Instagram. <laughs> and then without the anxious that. truth is your podcast, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. awesome. Welcome, Drew. And I don't want to butcher this. Lynn Salata. Am I getting um, this right? Did you say it just like you spell it? Like Mojo yeah. Howitz. Drew <laughs> Lynn Salata. Uh, I love that. Is that Italian? That is completely Italian. We used to have an apostrophe. It's literally the salad. Well, we are definitely, okay, made to be friends because Sepinara, yeah, Insalata. Okay, <laughs> where, where in Italy was your family from? Do you my know? My family is from Bari and Calabria. Okay. And oh, uh, yeah. yeah, my, my grandfather's family was from Sicily, though, which you okay. know, the rest of Italy would say is barely Italy, but counts. <laughs> right, I know people yeah. say that. Take yes, it. we're um, Nepal, Naples like area our family. Um, I can't wait to go back, by the way. I love Italy so much. Well, awesome. Welcome. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you. For anyone um, that doesn't know, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about Drew um, and kind of how he's become this amazing healer on um, different social media platforms and podcasts. Um, So he's the host of the Anxious Truth podcast and he has 3 million downloads and thriving. That's amazing. Um, you're a graduate student in clinical mental health counseling, therapist in training, which we love. We love experts in the field and also experts on social media and best-selling author, educator, and advocate in the anxiety disorder community. You are a former sufferer of panic disorder, agoraphobia, and clinical depression for more than 25 years before fully recovering You've lived the experiences you speak and write about. And I love nothing more than talking to experts who are, um, you know, professionals, but also actually talk about the history that they have with mental health, because I think there's such a relatable aspect to that. Um, And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your, this is kind of how we go into when we have our guests. I love hearing the history of, you know, um, how you got into doing this work, but also your personal experience with anxiety and what you talked about with depression and agoraphobia and how that led you here. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, it's been a heck of a ride. I, I was, um, I mean, I'll try and give you the abridged version if possible, but, uh, my first panic attack happened when I was a sophomore and doing my undergrad work, which was a while ago. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's video on this podcast, but there's a ton of gray in my beard. So it was a few years ago. And uh, everything was going great. And I had my first panic attack, had no freaking idea what it was. I interpreted it as I'm dying. Something is wrong with me. And so I became a textbook example of a person that experiences a panic attack and then worries about the next one and then quickly develops panic disorder and then starts to develop a go. I was, you could literally look me up and I should be in a textbook. Like this is how a panic attack disorder, which turns into agoraphobia. And then depression started to pop in there. And you know the, the deal. I mean, you're a professional in the field. They All the themes sort of start to weave in and out. There was a bunch of like crazy intrusive thoughts and OCD type stuff going on there. And 
it was a really rough, like an eight month slide into a really dark place. And then um, somebody handed me a Claire Weeks book, a psychologist said, read this. And I was like, oh my God, she wrote this book for me. You know, good oh old Oh my gosh. And I, I read it twice in 24 hours. And I'll be honest with you, Allison, I didn't have to do any recovery work, but it kind of went away as soon as I knew what it was. I'm like, oh, I'm not dying. Okay, cool. And then- So interesting. Good, but then it came back. Again. Well, right. Right. It yeah. never goes. That's healing is a lifelong journey. I mean, this is like I'm a broken record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say that probably you know. every episode that we go on. I'm like, healing is a lifelong journey. And you know, because I agree. We never stop learning things about ourselves. We never stop working on stuff. Yeah. One hundred percent. Um, I have a question. Do you can do you know now looking back when that panic attack first happened, what triggered you and what that was about? No clue. Everything in my life was going so well. I yeah. 4.0 grade point average. Everything was going great. I, to this day, I do not know, but and, it didn't matter because the you, trigger. Right, right. Well, and you are a, um, and you were in college, right? Was, yeah, I was in college. It was 1986. I was a yeah. sophomore. Yeah. So you're at that point too, your brain's not even fully developed yet, right? Like our brain doesn't even fully develop till we're 26. So it's so hard to know, you know, certain factors that are going into that intense response. Sure. Um, and it can feel so scary too. You're still a kid. Like you really are. And anyone that's listening that's that age, like you are still a, a kid. Your brain is developing, right? You're still learning um, how to respond to things. So, and, and no one had ever had like the panic attack talk with me. I had no idea what a panic attack, I'd never heard of it. You know, this was pre, 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 pre-internet, you know, yep. so it's not like, oh, let me go on Google and see what this was. There was no Google. And so I just assumed something is seriously wrong with me, man. And uh, that drove a lot of fear and a lot of avoidance and things got kind of nasty. And I went through that three times in my life over the course of 25 years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Those like intense panic attacks, you mean? Yeah. So like I was, I was okay for quite a long time and then around, you know, eight or nine years later, then. I, you know, now in that moment, the second time around, I was, again, I was building a really successful business. I was one of those first dot-com boom dudes, like building the internet and we never yeah. slept. So yeah, I was probably driving myself <laughs> around and sure enough, anxiety started to pop in and the old fear of it was still there. I never actually learned how to deal with it. I just mm. knew what it was and it kind of faded away because I, you know, but, uh, and it went off the rails and I started avoiding and I started having recurring panic attacks again. It became agoraphobic and depression. And then it got really nasty because there was a lot of, I'm afraid the orange juice is poisoned. I can't, I can't drink that. I can't eat this. I, I keep thinking about this. I'm obsessed with thoughts about death and existence. And that was no fun. Um, so that was the second go around that I, I wound up on medication. I was told, if you're diabetic, you would take insulin, right? So I was given that line and that's fine. I have no, you know, everybody picks their own path. That stopped it all, but there was all kinds of problems that came along with that. And then two, about nine or 10 years later, I just, I couldn't take the medication anymore. It just wasn't working for me anymore. And it all came back again as soon as I got off the meds and I had to go through it again. But that was the third time I actually went through the process that I document in the books that I write in the podcast. I did the work. I did the exposure work. I faced the fear. I learned that new relationship with anxiety. And now I'm just not afraid of it anymore. So it, it's kind of non-existent. That's, That's in a nutshell. So uh, you mentioned something that kind of is a buzzword in my mind that I love asking about when I hear it, which is exposure work. Um, can you describe a little bit about what that looked like for you and how 
how yeah. hard it was and it, when it worked and all of that. Um, it's super hard. And what it looked like for me was I had to, you know, they were playing, I was very textbook. I mean, literally there was nothing special about my, my presentation because if I would get anxious in a certain context, then I wouldn't want to be in that context driving or in supermarkets or the mall or at parties or at restaurants. I just didn't want to be anywhere. It could only be in the tiny little bubble in my house where it was safe because I might not panic. Then I'd panic in the house too. So for me, exposure was I'm going to have to start allowing myself to feel these things and stop trying to get away from them. And I tried all the, all the ways to make it stop and it never worked consistently. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to try it this other way. But I already knew that other way. I, I can't claim that I was ignorant. I knew it. I just didn't really embrace it. And, and I've come to believe that like we all get there in our own time. However way you get to that point, you get there. There's no right or wrong to get there. And it just took me a really long time to get to the point where I was like, I'm done with this. You're going to have to kill me now because I'm not going to live like this anymore. And so I started going toward it. Yeah. And, and yeah. The, a wonderful thing too about exposure is that, you know, once you do that practice um, and, you know, ERP exposure and response prevention is very behavioral. So, yes. um, you know, as a holistic practitioner, I don't specialize in ERP. I think it's so amazing, but um, there is a, a huge factor of CBT in that. Um, and kind of reframing all intrusive things that are happening while you are exposed to things. Right. But but what's so great is that um, in all different types of, you know, approaches, once you find what works, and especially with exposure, mm -hmm. when you do kind of make those milestones that some people might think of as small, but they're not, your yeah. confidence is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought I never would be able to, for me, you know, get on an airplane again. And I did, you know, a couple months ago. And I remember getting back and I'm like, I'm traveling everywhere now. I'm like, I'm going to book a flight here and all this stuff. I felt, you know, I still this underlying thing a little bit, but yeah. um, I feel like that was that something that you found as you started doing the work. It was. And in the end, it's, you know, tearing down that internal dialogue that says this is too much or it's really at this point, I understand because there comes a point when you've been through it so often repetitively that like this cannot be heart attack number 71,000. It can't be. So now it's just, I'm really afraid and I don't want to be afraid. And it became, you know what? I can't handle being that afraid. And then slowly but surely it was like, oh, look, I can handle being that afraid. Mm -hmm. And that is what changed everything. And you're right. When you first have that experience that like I did what I had to do, even though I was afraid and I came out the other side, oh, it's like superhero feeling. You know that when you got off that plane, right? Oh like my you gosh. Like a world yes. beater. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I can't ahead. believe I did this. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, that's so great. So how long do, would you say now that you feel like you've really been on this path of healing where you've, you're managing everything pretty well? And, and have you had a panic attack? When's the last time you had one? So this is where maybe like the, the this is where I diverge a little bit from the word healing. Cause I'm not, I don't heal anything anymore. I don't have to. Oh, oh okay. So, okay. I know me. it means something different for everybody. Right. It's that's exactly right. I want to be really respectful because everybody uses their own words and that resonate with them. But for me, it was a good year and a half of really hard work, six or eight months of really hard work. And yeah. when I got to the point where I'm just not afraid, again, very textbook anxiety disorder here, for sure. So yeah. keep that in mind. But when I get to the point where like, I just don't really care anymore if I have a panic attack. So I'm going to get in a plane, I'm going to fly to this business trip that I got to go on. And if I panic on the plane, I know it'll be over in 15 minutes. So okay, fine, bring it. They stopped happening. 
So I don't have to, I don't manage anxiety anymore. It literally plays no role. However, maybe once or twice a year, I will in fact still have a panic attack. Maybe I might never have one again. I don't know. But okay. now I know if I am running myself ragged and I'm not sleeping and I take on 60,000 projects as yeah. I'm wanting to do, and I really wear myself down, I am more susceptible to that experience of panic. But even then it's an event and then it's over. Okay. Let me reword that. So yeah. let me reword my question. Yep. How do you manage when you have feelings of fear and worry? Because fear and worry are really when they're very exacerbated and you feel like they're, um, you can't, they have control over you. That's really what anxiety is and you don't have control. So when you, everyone has emotions. So when you feel scared and you feel worried, how do you, how do you not let them control you anymore? What do you do? It's, it depends. So like there's externally generated anxiety, which is like regular anxiety that all human beings are going to experience. If I'm worried about something and I know what it is. So like, oh, I'm really stressed by whatever. Oh, my daughter is going away to school for the first mm -hmm. time. Yeah. As a like, okay, well, I understand. I'm going to be maybe a little anxious or emotional over that. The, pro the thing that I have learned is that if I am worried or afraid because I'm worried or afraid, I am afraid of what I feel and worried of what I feel. That's when I know, mm -mm, got to back away. No fixing this. Let it peak. Let it rise. Let it do its thing. And, and it kind of goes out the other side of it and that's done. So okay. I've learned to really identify when it's external and useful. Maybe there's a message. And when it's internally generated, that's when you just, I don't have to engage with this. I'm just going to let it do what it does. So I love this because you're really giving a good, painting a good picture of someone who may not have been aware, very self-aware about this in the past, which is when maybe the panic and everything was out of control in your life or it was controlling you. And now it sounds like you have such an awareness to know that it doesn't control you. Like fear and worry doesn't have control over you anymore. That is correct. I, I feel 100% confident in saying that. So if, yeah, I, if I'm great. worried about how I feel, and listen, my brain will still go there sometimes. Mm -hmm. He needs to be on your podcast too. Sorry if you hear him in the background, but no, good. yeah. Uh, so sometimes my brain will go there. Oh, what was that? What was that sensation? And, and just like I did in 1986, I will have that initial, uh-oh reaction that never goes away. But then I catch it within a minute. So and all right, let it ride. Whatever's going to happen happens. I'm good. And it, and it's over fast. And it doesn't and I go on, on my day. Yeah. So a lot of work, the by the way, a oh lot my gosh, 100%. I mean, and this is why. So when I say the word healing, I think that there is um, a sense that sometimes people can quote unquote, cure mm -hmm. what it is. Um, they're feeling and they can, you know, um, they don't want to feel scared ever again or worried ever again. And that just doesn't exist. Not realistic. Um, right. And it just doesn't. You can't take that out of your psyche. And so um, being able to recognize that you can feel scared and you can feel worried and it still can be okay and you still can be safe. And it doesn't mean that you're not in control and it doesn't mean that something dangerous is happening. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. It's just a, a better yeah. awareness of where it's coming from. Like, oh, this kind of anxiety, I don't have to interact with. Mm -hmm. Can't can't just turn it off. But then it just peaks and goes away, and, and it's it's a non-event. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. I mean, I'm finding the language is so important too, which is so interesting because when I work with, um, sometimes I do the same work I do in my practice with children that I do with adults um, when it comes to feeling expression because. Unfortunately, there's so many of us um, 
you know, that are brought up in a household and it's no one's fault, right? Because it's very systemic, but we're brought up in a household that doesn't know language expression or doesn't know the language to, um, you know, express emotions and, and use feeling words. And I think that is what's so hard about growing up if you're not in that environment and you grow up and now you just know to use the word anxiety every two minutes, but really what's ha- what other emotions are happening to you, right? Like yeah. what, what's happening um, and what are, what are the, the, the differences between the thoughts you're having versus an emotion? It's, it's um, so much education about that, even to get more self-awareness. And then sometimes that for me is what took so long is to like, wait a second, I'm just using the word anxiety, but I'm actually really sad right now. You know, I'm grieving. My dad just died and I'm having the same physical symptoms, but I'm, I'm really sad. So um, I think that self-awareness piece is just such a huge part, especially in the beginning. Sometimes I, I think and you have a, you, your community is much larger than mine on social media, but uh, this is a pattern I see all the time. And I always say, if we were we collective, the royal we, mm-hmm. were better at that sort of skill, understanding like, oh, I can have emotions. Like if mm-hmm. we teach, our, we learned as kids, I can have emotions. They're allowed. I can have strong internal experiences. Yes. They're not automatically an emergency. We, you and I, would probably have less work to do. I bet. Yeah. Oh my I think gosh, that right. that is a. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I love, I'm so happy to hear that you're just exploring this still about, about your life and yourself while helping other people. I think that is just going to be so powerful to your audience and to the people listening. Um, You know, I credit my audience, to be honest with you. I consider it. I I have not spent eight years talking at people. I've been lucky to talk with them and Mm -hmm. they've taught me as much about their experiences as I know about mine. And you know, it, it makes for a broader view of this. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. And I'm so appreciative too, of being able to collaborate and connect with people like you on this platform. Um, you know, if we looked at even like five years ago, I mean, when I started talking about it online, there were maybe like three other psychologists or therapists even talking about it. And I'm like, why are people not you know, talking about mental health more in a public way. It's just, it was so weird to me that I, I mean, honestly, I, I see pages like yours and other pages, like even mine and other page. And I'm like, gosh, if I had this when I was like 11 years old and I had, I, I knew that other people were struggling with this. I cannot believe if I knew I had a community when I was a child, I was such an anxious child too. I mean, that's very, um, common. So, you know, I just, I'm just so appreciative too, you know, (laughs) It would be, a, it would have been a huge help. You're right. So. Yeah. But I did, I did hear you mention that there was part of you when you were struggling with the agoraphobia that maybe struggled with driving. And I know a part, a huge part of agoraphobia um, for anyone, I guess, for the audience who doesn't really isn't familiar with it. Can you just explain a little bit about agoraphobia? And then I do want to dive into kind of driving anxiety a little bit and how yeah, we can help my- that. Driving was driving anxiety was my jam for sure. Um, agoraphobia is just what we call it. Most people will say, oh, agoraphobia means you're afraid to leave the house. But agoraphobia is really just what happens when you develop such an avoidant lifestyle because you're trying to never have your anxiety, your panic, your scary thoughts triggered. And so you start to cut out more and more things of your out of your life. If I panic in the car, I can't go in the car. If I panicked at, at back to school night, I can't go to back to school night. If I panicked mm-hmm. in a movie theater, I can't go there. I can't go to places where I might be trapped and feel these thoughts or these sensations. So, and then your world just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That's a good yeah. yeah. And it will yeah. look like I can't leave the house or I can't go too far from the house, but 
but it's just avoidance run amok. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And so one of those huge things for you, you said, was kind of driving and getting into the car and feeling comfortable doing that. Driving, yeah. For sure. Can you paint a picture of what that looked like for you? (laughs) I remember having a panic. So I'm on Long Island, uh, east of New York City. And uh, hang on a second. It's okay. I'm going to close the door real quick. Maybe we'll hear him a little bit less. Um, so yeah, I live, uh, on Long Island outside of New York city. And I remember having a panic attack on anybody who lives in Long Island, the Southern state parkway, which is a big parkway. Right. And, okay. um, <clears throat> and that was such a impactful experience because at the time I'm still interpreting panic as I, something must be wrong. I need to get to help sign. I'm going to need an ambulance. I'm going to get a hospital. I'm, I might be, I'm slipping away somehow. I'm dying. This is dangerous. It's too much. And so I didn't want to drive on on those big roads anymore as soon as that happened. And then every then it started happening on surface roads too. It didn't or or side roads, local roads. It didn't matter. I associated getting in the car with, oh no, if I get in the car, mm-hmm. it's not I'm afraid to drive. What this really is, is I'm afraid of how I feel when I drive. And I don't want to feel that way. So I better not drive. And it made it so that literally just looking at the car in the driveway would yeah, would make me really Just looking at it. Wow. If I thought that I might have to get in that car and drive away, I would get really agitated. My, my anxiety level would go way up. Okay. I, and I would feel all of the feels just thinking that I might have to drive literally 60 seconds away from the house. So that, wow. So that got it got to the point where you couldn't even imagine it, like even imagine getting in the car, just yes. even looking. I, I could trigger myself by thinking of driving like, and so you get to that point where at the time, maybe my kids. So when I stopped taking medication, and everything, and I started to do that, the work of recovery, mm-hmm. my kids were small. So pick them up at school. The school is no joke. Two minutes from the house. It's an elementary school. They're always close to your house. Yeah. Unless you're like a rural place, I guess, but that would be hugely triggering. Like, oh no, I might have to pick them up today. Like I might have to drive two minutes away and wait in that parking lot, you know, in front of the school for up two minutes. And oh no, I can't do that. So oh it, was it, was, wow. it was a happy place to be. How long? I don't know if if you feel okay answering this. Um, I'll answer all of it. How long? Okay. What was the longest amount of time you went without driving? Do you know? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know if I can give you an accurate answer because okay. like, was it more than like two days, or was it more than like oh, two weeks? Weeks, at oh, least it was weeks. weeks. Yeah, at least okay. weeks. Wow. And so like people who develop that problem, and if you're listening, I get you, we will find super creative ways to work around that, to make sure that I don't have to drive, that someone else can drive that, you know, like, yeah, it's a big deal. You get so creative in your avoidance and you look back on it in retrospect and say, wow, I was was a lot of energy trying not to be triggered. Totally. So was yours also um, just you driving or were also, cause I know I work with a lot of clients that actually struggle with just getting into a car, even as a passenger. Yeah. Um, I could get in the car as a passenger with a, just a couple of people. So typical again, like yep. textbook presentation of people who I determined were safe people for me. So I could drive if I was with certain people because I don't know, they would save me if I needed saving, which in retrospect, again, doesn't make any sense, but that was the way I did it. So if I, sometimes I would drive. And so if I had a safe person in the passenger seat, I would, because sometimes I felt just like, this is crazy. I got to be able to drive my family around. Like I can't, and I would right. get at my, my courage and like, and just white knuckle my way through it and just grit my teeth and just get through the drive, the short 20 minute drive or whatever. But 
yeah, it was, there was a lot of conditions. I was going to say, and, and how difficult that must have been too, knowing that like the more that you were finding these safe people, I'm doing air quotes, um, the more that in your, your brain was connecting them with this, um, kind of compulsion, right? So, and, and like you would, you became dependent on mm-hmm. them being there in order for you to be safe. So I became dependent upon them. There were so many conditions, Al. There was safe people to drive me around. If I had to go somewhere, it had to be with a safe person. If I did, I couldn't, uh, being alone, home alone. I love being home alone now. I'm a huge alone fan. Back yeah. then, terrifying. So like, you know, all of it starts to go together. If I can't be saved, if the people here that, that save me aren't around and my brain, every time I would do that, it would literally be like, yes, you see, there you go. You need to be saved make sure that the saving people are here. And so I just kept reinforcing that mistake again and again and again and again. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Wow. Okay. So do you know, okay, so I'm curious at what point did you start this treatment for yourself? And since there were so many layers, mm-hmm. was the anxiety um, co- that was connected to driving and and that part of your agoraphobia, was that in and of itself a treatment or was that just all part of what you did to help stop well, avoiding things? Yeah. In the end, as, uh, and I, a lot of people don't get this part, but I didn't have to learn how to stay home alone. I didn't have to practice that. Sometimes I did. But okay. primarily any time that I would put myself in touch with that negative internal experience of high anxiety or panic, driving or whatever, and allow it to happen and navigate through it without the whole saving and escaping rituals, I got better at handling it. And so it became less scary and dangerous to me. So no matter what the context was, it translated to other places. So my driving, the exposure work that I did driving really helped everything else which I, I kind of knew technically would happen, but I didn't believe that would happen until it okay. did happen. So if I would go out and practice driving every morning, which I did for many months, I, I thought, well, now I have to practice going to the supermarket. Now I have to practice the school pickup. And as it turns out, I was still afraid to do those things because I didn't have experience with them. But the driving exposures made all the other challenges more manageable. Mm. Yeah. So again, the, the lesson there was it wasn't the car. It was how I felt. It was always how I felt. I'm afraid of how I feel. <clears throat> and so when I got better at dealing with that, it, it did translate slowly to other things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can. So, so, <clears throat> and when, how long ago was this? I'm just curious when you had that this was like peak of. Yeah. So I was doing this work between like 2007, 2008 in that okay. neighborhood. Yeah. Okay. It was a while ago now. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. so that's so great though that you're that you can look back and identify, you know, what kind of was I'm sure that's so helpful when you're working with people now who um, you know, experience similar types of fears, right? And 
fear of fear, right? There's so much of that. Um, because, you know, again, there's no timeline for any type of work, right? It's not nope. linear. You're not just going to go like this. I mean, things can happen, right. um, you know. So I'm curious, what was your, um, if you, do you have any moments where you feel like, okay, this isn't working? This is not, you know, what am I, what am I doing? And it, like, you're so, you didn't think it was going, <clears throat> I'm just so curious as far as, you know, you were standing there, like I'm picturing you standing at the window, looking at the car and feeling like I'm never getting in that car again. Right. I'm just painting it in my mind as like, you know, imagining what you're looking like. Uh-huh. What did it, what was like the first step, I guess, for you? Did you go out and stand next to the car? Did ha- what did, did, and were you with a exposure therapist at the time or did you learn this on your no. own? I'm so curious. Interestingly, I'm a huge fan of professional help, right? If you can find someone who specializes, I'm a huge fan of, of yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I did this work, I did not do it with any help. It wasn't a conscious choice. Like, I'm not going to get a therapist. I just, I had okay. a therapist for a while. She was wonderful. She was not an anxiety specialist in any way, but she okay. helped me in other ways. I wasn't, I was kind of, we had, I wasn't seeing her anymore. And I had just reached the point in my life where there was a story that, and I've read about, I've written about this, standing at my front door, looking at the car in the driveway for two and a half hours, while there was a, a problem in the business that I owned at the time, which was three and a half miles from my house, I had to go there. And it took me two and a half hours of looking out the window and open the door and push, shut the door, go back, sit down, go to lay on it before I got out the door. And my life had gotten to that point where I, I hit the, the point of like the pain of facing this fear is better than what I feel stuck. And that's, I had to get to that point. And so that was the point that I reached. And then I remember it was, it sounds cliche, but it was right around the new year. It was a brutal winter. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to the people around me, I'm going to start doing some stuff now. Do not ask me how I feel. Do not ask me how I'm doing. If I need you, I will tell you. And I just put my head down and I started doing it. But okay. the steps were so tiny. Before I got in the car, I thought, okay, I'm going to get up and start practice driving, right? And I would be panicking, putting on my shoes and brushing my teeth. And so I learned, oh, before I can get in the car, I have to learn how to panic getting ready to get in the car. So the first couple of weeks was me literally waking up, knowing that as soon as my feet hit the floor, I was going to do a driving exposure and I would panic and I had to work through it in the house. And then, okay, now I'm going to like, let me go out and sit in the car and I panic sitting in the car. And then I had to work through that. And then it was, let me drive away. And I would panic when I drove away from the house. Let me work through that. What does panic mean though? When you say I would panic as I was doing that, what does that mean? Panic is derealized, feels like I'm oriented and dizzy. My heart is pounding. I can't breathe. I'm sweating. It was five degrees Fahrenheit and I was sweating in the car because yeah. you know, that, that physiological response, that was pan- like panic, actual physiological panic. And I had to okay. learn to just, I can't, all I wanted to do was turn around and run back in the house. Yeah. And a couple of times I did, I wasn't perfect at it, yeah. but I, you know, it was just those little, and then the steps got bigger and bigger, but this is months and months of work. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. 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 But no, I think this is, I think that that is, you know, painting this picture. And for anyone listening, I'm sure there's people right now that are even listening to you tell that story is triggering for them. Probably. Right. Like even hearing yep. your symptoms, hearing, you know, being in the car, especially if um, who, who's listening has anxiety about driving. Um, 
I would assume probably a little bit, but hearing that type of um, situation could be so hard to visualize getting through. So what kind of, before we get into questions, because we have a lot, um, (laughs) what would you say to that person who is thinking, sitting with this? Are you kidding me? These are you okay? You woke up and you started having a panic attack while you're brushing your teeth and all this. And then you got in the car, you just continued to have it. Like, what are you talking about? You know, I just can hear people saying that to themselves. What would you say to them? I would say, yes, that's exactly what I did. And what I I always try and acknowledge, and I get this every day, people who like maybe stumble upon my content will listen to some of the stuff and say, you clearly have never had a panic attack. You don't know what you're talking about. This is horrible. I, I understand. My heart goes out to them. I don't take it personally. I get it. Your relationship with your own body and mind in that situation is in a place right now where it seems absolutely unfathomable that you could allow a panic attack. I understand because I used to be that person. And you may still be in a position where it's like, no, 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 I will prefer to try to manage it and stop it and make it go away and avoid my triggers. I don't. And if you know what, if you like your life that way, um, thumbs up, you have my blessing. That's totally fine. We all get to make our own choices and, and we get to respect each other for that. But if you don't like your life that way, sooner or later, you reach the point where it's like, I have to at least consider that they're this crazy guy from New York and all the people who sound like him might have a point. And I, I think for me, it got to the point where like, I don't like how I feel about myself living in this avoidant way. I know that theory that I know that works. I'm going to have to like put my faith in it and take a leap because this isn't working. So yeah. I, I might as well try that. It sounds casual, but I get it right now. This seems in in. Everybody who ever got better was once thought the same thing. That's impossible. This is crazy. This guy doesn't always talk about it. Everybody thought that. I thought that. And I've written books about doing this. And I used to think that. Impossible. Which, which is essentially the what I would say if mm-hmm. I, you know, as I hear this and um, as, you know, I think about all of the work, the incredible work that so many people have done to help people that struggle with anxiety and panic disorder is the way that you think is what is matters. <laughs> the way that you think matters, right? You said the word thought and think about six times in the past 30 seconds. Correct. But I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't want to step on you, but I agree with you a hundred percent, except I always add, but well, we don't get to pick what we think. 100%. That's so important because people will say, yes, it's all my negative, but it's my negative thoughts. That's okay. You're going to have to let them happen because you can't stop them. Yes. It is what I thought. It's about what I thought about what I thought, how I felt about how I felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I had to throw and, that. And, and they're, you're right. And thoughts are completely automatic, Yep. right? Can't they're automatic. Yep. No Can't one decides Listen. just to have, you know, come in. And we, Taylor and I speak about this all the time. Um, and if you are listening and you struggle with um, OCD, you're mm-hmm. definitely in tune with obsessive thoughts and what types of even thoughts can feel really scary, right? There's a lot of thoughts that we have that can feel scary that we do not act on. And we're, we're, it makes us very scared why we're even having that thought. But again, you have over, I don't know, 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day. Some of them are in our subconscious. Some of them mm-hmm. aren't there. You cannot expect to, to just be in control of every single thought that pops into your head. Yeah. They're automatic. They happen. But with the self-awareness piece, that you've described so well that you're able to do, which is so amazing, is that 
you can have this sort of internal dialogue with yourself mm-hmm. and understand that not every single thing that pops into your head is the truth. Correct. Right. Especially when it comes to panic and anxiety, like 99% of the time, what you're thinking is not a fact. Okay? Oh, They're goodness. not truths, but you, your anxiety is making you believe that it is. And it's really not. So that right. internal dialogue, and I guess that's what I mean by healing. Cause I feel like I'm always going to constantly have this internal dialogue with myself and that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's totally good. okay. You know, I always like to tell people we can choose what to think. You can't choose what not to think. And so that's totally fine. If you, that internal dialogue starts and that's part of who you are, there's not a, that's not a crime. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong or you're broken. It just, 100%. You know, yeah, it's now what, how can I re, how can I learn to relate a little bit differently or into that internal dialogue? Yeah. Uh, and there's so much emotional reasoning that goes on, but it feels like, I know you hear this every day. It feels so real. It feels so strong. And in this state that I was in and many people listening are in the, we make our decisions based on what it feels like. If, it, if I am experiencing a state of distress, now if I can identify, yes, there's somebody with a gun or there's a bear coming at me or I'm about to crash my car, yeah, then we understand why we have that distress and we act accordingly. If we can't find it and the state of distress is just existing in the absence of something else, then I'm gonna take that state of distress and say, it must mean that something really is wrong. If I feel this way, something must be wrong. Mm-hmm. So we start to at least tiptoe a little bit in your own time and your own way toward the concept that well, maybe what I feel isn't an indicator of reality. That could be. What if it? What if that was true? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so- it's, it's so interesting because now, as you talk about that, I'm thinking. Last week, my niece had her first day of school, mm-hmm. and she's nine. And this year, for some reason, she had a really bad panic attack on the first day. And my sister called me, and she's like, "Can you FaceTime with her?" And I said, "Of course." You know walked with through her on FaceTime step-by-step step of helping her and and getting through this. And when she was getting into the car was her highest peak. I mean, I've been doing this work for so long. I can under, I can, you know, see what yeah. people's highest peaks are and, you know. Um, and so in the car ride there, all she kept saying was, I'm so scared. I'm, I think I'm going to throw up. I'm so scared. Now with children, um, you know, a lot of their symptoms are very physical adults too, but children are talk about language. They really don't have the language yet to know what's wrong um, and express it. And I remember just saying, look at me, you are feeling scared, which is fine, but it doesn't mean you're in danger. You're safe right now. You're in the car. Mm-hmm. Nothing dangerous is here. You're not going to get hurt. Nothing is hurting you. You're not in danger. You're in the car with us and you're safe. And that immediately helped her. That yeah. is how she. So for some reason, we believe we're in danger the same way if we were in a forest and a bear was about to attack us. I mean, you know, we get into a car and we feel that exact same danger if we have this heightened panic about that. Right. Or whatever is, um, you know, leading up to that panic, whatever that trigger is, you know, try and think of another word, but it is so um, important that dialogue is just, and, and it doesn't work all the time. You know, we're not perfect people. Of course, we talk about how, you know, that word, and that's another thing about perfection, forget yeah, it, I mean, and high, high functioning anxiety. Um, yeah. But it's just, and personally too, and people I've worked with around those specific statements of just making, being able to say to yourself, like, I know I'm not in danger. I feel scared, Mm -hmm. but I know I'm okay. In those moments can be, can really be so helpful. 
I think it's a foundational part. I'm sorry, I stepped on you. No, no, go ahead. I I think that statement, I'm, so what I always try and tell people is like, and because they'll always say, yeah, but it, yeah, but then my brain starts to race and then I feel the nausea or whatever they think is the scariest. And I get it. All the people listening, everybody has their scariest thing. My heart, my blood, nausea, dizzy. I get that. But in, in the end, no matter how often you say to yourself, I'm safe, your brain is going to keep going, but what if? And so in the end, that's a super important framing statement. And I always say, well, your body is doing scared body things like yeah. it's designed to do. Yes. Now you have to do a thing, which is to allow it to happen, to drop those old habits that say, I have to do something to get rid of these feelings right now. And so that statement that you made, I can be afraid, but still be safe is a hugely important framing statement. I find that people get frustrated because they think that statement alone should fix it. Yeah. But then, but then it all goes out the window. I don't believe it. Fix so what though? What are they trying to fix? They're trying to feel better. They're trying to talk <laughs> right. their way into feeling better by saying, right. I'm safe. I'm safe. It's okay. I'm safe. I got this. And sometimes yeah. it works, but when it doesn't, yeah. then they, oh, I, I'm so bad. It's my anxiety so bad. I can't do it. And that's heartbreaking. Cause that's not now, true. Now yeah. they're, yeah. now they're personalizing it too. And that's, all yeah. Good. Yeah. And they're kind of beating uh, I, up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, um, when it comes to, well, I want to get into some questions because people want to talk about driving a little bit. I kind of digressed with my little niece story, but I was just, I was just thinking, you know, when it comes to those statements, how helpful it can be to reframe that and know that you can be scared without it controlling you. Right. We're all going to feel scared. We're all going to feel worried again. This is what it is. And really it's about trying to figure out how to be in these environments that you want to avoid and knowing you can be scared, but you're not in danger. Mm -hmm. Because I had to bring that into the driving. (laughs) I literally had to bring exactly what you're saying into my driving. Yes. Yes. Um, Okay. So let's answer a couple questions. I'd love to get your um, feedback on some of these because a lot of people that struggle with driving anxiety are, I think, feeling very similar to how you felt when you were talking about it. Okay. Um, so someone wrote that was in a car accident said, since my car accident, I always disassociate and imagine an accident. And then the anxiety escalates. Mm -hmm. How can she work on this? That's different. I would say, I would argue that that's a different situation because if you have driving anxiety because you have been in an auto accident or someone close to you has, or you witnessed one and it's left a mark on you, that's a little bit different because now you can have developed that fear reaction to driving. So that becomes a little bit more of a, I don't get too geeky here, but it's a bit more of a simple phobia. And maybe there is, there was an unresolved crisis. There could be some trauma there. It's possible. So I yeah. think that's a little bit different. I would not tell somebody who is in a, uh, let me be very, I'm going to be really careful about what I say here. I would never tell somebody who says, well, I was in a car accident and now I, I dissociate or I panic when I think about getting in the car. I would not say, well, you, you got to start driving, start driving tomorrow. I would never say that because I think what has to happen here is you have to recognize like, oh yeah, well, this is why you're feeling those things. Now in the end, most of the effective way to get past that will involve reprocessing that that event mentally and moving through imaginal and physical exposures. You're going to have to do it sooner or later, but we would do it much more slowly and much more gently because there's a different context. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you were in a car accident or you've been affected by that in some way, you were a loved one or you so that's, you were in a different context now. That's not an anxiety disorder. 
Sounds like maybe there's more if there is some type of trauma. In the end, the path is going to be similar out the other side with a lot of other wrinkles. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Someone asked um, for some tips on driving anxiety, which you kind of gave, but also specifically, when should you pull over if you feel like you really need to? This is probably the most common driving anxiety question I get. There is no crime in pulling over because remember, it's not the driving. Again, remember the context I'm working. I'm working in this internally generated chronic anxiety disorder type of thing. Okay. So I'm getting really anxious while I drive. It's that's the exposure. It's not the moving the car down the road. It's the feeling that you get. So if you have to pull over and experience that feeling, go ahead. That's totally fine. Let it, let it pass. That's the win. So the exposure isn't the drive. The exposure is what you feel. Feel it on the side of the road, feel it in the right lane. It doesn't matter. So pull over whatever you want. Yeah. So give yourself permission to say it's okay to do that. Just pull over. It's way better to pull over. And you got, these are skills you have to work on. Of course, let it peak, let it fall. Show yourself that you're still handle that. I came out the other side is way better than, oh my God, I have to go back home right now. I would pull over before going home any day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. What are some things I can do while driving on the freeway to calm down if I start panicking? This is where I get unpopular because okay. <laughs> I'm joking, but this, unpopular. Is hard, this is a hard sell because my response to that is part of the problem is that you have been trying so hard to calm down. And the assumption there is if I feel these things, I must not allow this. And so I need techniques that instantly bring it down. Give me techniques Mm. that calm me down, which essentially says, yes, you should, we have to help you so that you never feel that. But that's not necessarily true. That's part of what drives this problem. And so when people say, give me tips to calm down, I would say, well, the first tip is recognize that you could be okay even if you don't actively calm down. If you let that physiology play itself out and you do not, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, and you amp it up and keep it going in undulating waves, if you just let it play itself out, maybe you got to pull over for a couple of minutes while it happens. Okay. And you you didn't have to calm down. It'll calm down. Your body knows how to calm down if you let it. So maybe, okay, so maybe it would be some type of internal dialogue or something you say to yourself versus it's really something that you do and so and then this is what and i'm joking this is where i get unpopular this is such a hard sell because again this person would be saying like are you kidding me what what kind of answer was that and i understand why you might think that it is what i feel that i cannot handle these sensations I am worried that this will be too much. I will be out of control. Yeah. It will overtake me or some horrible thing will happen. But reality has shown me that that is never true. I just think that all of my calming techniques are responsible for having kept me safe, but they never did. And so the inner dialogue is just a challenging of the old narrative that says, I'm not going to pick on any particular coping skills, but my coping skills are what keep me safe. What, yeah. if, they, what if they weren't? What if those were sprinkles and they weren't the doing only- it? The only uh, thing I will say um, that in just a devil's advocate for this is um, it can be dangerous on the freeway, especially when you're driving. So I think that sometimes I can, I think that I I can imagine that it can, 
it might not be safe to that. That's why I like that you said maybe pull over because I don't know how safe it is if someone's disassociating or de- derealization or depersonalization and they're still driving, but still focusing on the road. That could it's, be it's the focusing on the road part. And listen, this is yeah, not take any of this as like, well, this is the technique that I heard on the anxiety chicks podcast because. Allison doesn't know you. I don't know you. Like you would literally have a specific way to go through this based on your context. But the principle would be even in that situation, which is a hard sell, because anybody who has ever been in that state while driving on the highway has, if that person sent in the question, they have navigated even while they felt that way. And in many instances, I will say, well, what do you do? Well, I I get off the highway, I go home. So while you're anxious and panicked and dissociated, you navigate that vehicle home. How many times have you done that? I don't know, 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. Seems like you actually can navigate the vehicle. Now it's okay to pull over. It's okay if you feel like yeah. it's But we always try to challenge the absolute narrative that says this is 100% unsafe. But if you want to make that choice, you can make that choice. That's okay yeah. also. Yeah. Well, I love that. So like really that is part of what we were talking about as far as like the reprocessing of our our thoughts and our our like what that dialogue right of like what our anxiety is screaming at us to like not do something and to avoid because and then there's that you know more rational and logical part of us that knows the facts and mm. knows that things are okay um one thing i would say is that you know as far as our biological response to anxiety that physical symptoms are very real and while they're not dangerous, you can't die from a panic attack, they're still very, very real. So there might be times when people either are on a freeway or maybe sitting in their room and still having the same panic attacks because their thoughts are making them believe they're in danger. And they might want some types of tools to help activate the parasympathetic nervous system, right? They might want to, um, you know, there are specific concrete tools that actually do enhance um, homeostasis and bring you back to a balanced state. Um, So those types of things can be very helpful. But are they going to, um, you know, in the long run, do anything? I don't think they're going to change your thought process. No. In that moment, will they uh, release the chemicals you need in order for your body to maybe not experience all of those physical symptoms as as intensely? Yes, probably. Because according to research. Those those symptoms are real. You are hundred percent right. You always, those are real symptoms. Yeah. Don't let anybody tell you the fear is just in your head. It's one swear to God. 100%. Yeah. So, so those, so there are, and you guys, you know, there's so many things you can do if you are feeling those real, real physical symptoms that you can, um, I would recommend honestly pulling over if you feel out of control while you're driving, because you can put I don't know. I feel like the safety of other people too, if you know, um, and this is just driving, but I like that though. Like the, the reframing, like that inner dialogue of being able to say that, right? Like, listen, you, you feel it and just do it and you know, you can get through it. And then maybe you get that confidence, right? Like we were talking about before you made it to your destination. Okay. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. times it is incremental, right? So like when I had to start getting back on the Long Island Expressway, for me, it was like, it took me a lot of work to get to that point. And then it was one exit. If you're in England, it's an interchange or whatever you guys had exchange, whatever yes. you guys call it. But yeah, and so it's, you don't just decide one day, just do it. Let me just do it. It doesn't work that way also. So Totally. 
Yes. Okay. Let's do one more. Megan, this has been so great. Um, okay. Let's see. I'm sorry, you guys. There were so many. Okay. Is parking anxiety related? I have to know where to park when going for the first time. Is parking anxiety related? This is the first time I've heard this. This is great. Okay. I, I've heard that. Um, I would argue again in the context I'm always addressing, which is this disordered state of anxiety, that it's all the same. Driving anxiety, parking anxiety, supermarket anxiety, sleep anxiety, it's all the same in the end. And there's power in that though, right? So I'm not trying to minimize anyone's experience, but there's power in that. So if you feel like I, I can only be okay if I know where I'm going to park, I can guess based on experience and a large number of people that that's because I need to know that I won't have to walk too far because I don't like if I have to walk too far, my heart rate might go up. Or I need to know that I'll be able to see my car because if I go too far from my car, I feel unsafe. Or I need to know that it won't be too crowded because I can't circle the parking spots and try and find because I, then I feel trapped and I might feel bad yeah. when I do that. Yeah. Probably a million reasons why you want to know where to park. And it, yes, it's all the same in the end. It's it's part of this. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's the our, 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 what we're telling ourselves. Right. That we right. can't do. Okay. Can't sorry. Do That's There's one more that I really want to do because yeah. I'm just, I'm looking at this. Does anyone get even more anxiety as a passenger than when they are actually driving? So I've found both. It's probably 50, 50. Some people are yeah. terrified to drive. Some people have to drive. I can't be the passenger. I freak out. I hear that all the time. That's it's pretty curious. Normal. I mean, obviously it's, it's case by case. Right. Um, I'm sure. But I, yeah, I don't. Well, 60, I, 40 maybe, but it, a lot of people can't be the passenger. I was, I was what surprised. Have you, have you, what have you found, I guess, are some of those reasons why they are, um, like what's going on in their mind? It, in the passenger? end, it's always, I might feel a way. And if I am the passenger, I either am embarrassed to, to show it to the driver. Now I'm out of, I'm not oh, in okay. control. The driver is running the car, so I can't just pull over. I can't just go home. I can't just run into McDonald's and use the bathroom. So I'd have to tell that person that I'm panicking or I'm anxious and I'm, I don't want to do that. I get that. Or I just, I'm just out of control. I cannot, I can't save myself if I'm not the driver. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Like if right. there's, if there's another car that's braking or something and you feel like you're getting too close to the person's getting too close to it, but you can't go on the brakes. The other person is other driving. Person or, or again, if, and that might be like, I'm really hypervigilant behind the wheels and I want to know, and I can't hit the brakes. Yeah. But then it makes me feel a little worried because traffic seems busy and agitating. Okay, like a lot of people would say, but for me, an agitated state, anxious person is unacceptable because the agitation itself becomes more agitation and then it just snowballs and spirals and gets out of control. So yeah, I would, 40%, that's a rough, yeah. not scientific, but in my community, I bet you 40% of people would prefer to drive. Either they don't want to be in the car at all, or if they have to, they want to be the driver. I feel like that totally makes sense, though, because you're more in control, quote, a quote driver, air quotes, right? as a driver. Yeah, I think it does make sense. I was surprised yeah. by it. But I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that does make sense when people yeah. would say that to me. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Um, driving is such a tricky one, too, just because it's so you are, you know, when you think of the facts of like driving, right, and and accidents and stuff, I mean, like just brain can go into a spiral about that for and just like flying too right but just feeling even though if you are driving you're not in control of the other people around you so driving so there's so much that goes into 
that type of fear or phobia or avoidance when it comes to driving, but it's such a necessary thing in a lifestyle, someone's lifestyle. And I feel like it can be so, it can be so debilitating. Um, and just, oh, I, I, and I don't, you know, I don't do exposures, but I know so many colleagues that do. And I don't know many that actually do exposure, like in the car, like real time exposure with right. the clients anymore. Cause I've looked for them, um, that actually, and that is a, a huge practice that can be really helpful. Um, I, I would do it. I will, to- I will do it when I practice. I will do that. I would, if you're listening right now, and I think this is silly, but maybe it, it gives you some confidence or lets you know you're not entirely broken. If you're listening right now and you are convinced that you are a danger, if you get too anxious behind the wheel, I would get in the car with you and drive. That's how, that's how confident I am in you and your ability to handle it. So I would do it. There are still some therapists that do it, but you're right. They're hard to find. Yeah. It's, it's, it's clients on doing driving exposures, but I think it's really helpful if your therapist goes with you for the first time. Oh my gosh. Totally. I mean, there used to be so many now, of course, COVID and stuff happened, but, um, I've considered, I've considered actually starting to do that with some of my clients and I might, I haven't yet. Um, we'll say they're actually doing pretty good. Uh, but at the same time, it can be, it can be hard when you just feel lost. So I would just say, hopefully this episode has helped you recognize that there are so many different paths you can go on to find it in your recovery and actually find ways to help um, with your, your treatment with whether it's driving anxiety or agoraphobia, panic disorder, um, any type of anxiety disorders, like generalized anxiety, social anxiety. I think when it comes to trauma and like PTSD, there's specialized treatments. Um, anyone can contact me about any of them. I can help you know where to go on DMs. Um, but I think when it comes to driving anxiety, are you open to, how do people contact you, I guess, if they have more questions for you? Um, well, I mean, you know, theanxioustruth.com is my website. So all the links okay. and everything are there, the podcast, the okay. books, and if you want to find the.anxious.truth on Instagram, I'm most active there. But I, admittedly, okay. though, I'm not a good person to DM. I mean, you're an audience. If you, God bless you if you are answering DMs because I get 200 a day. I just I would love to answer you all, but I just can't. So Totally, totally. So they can get some help and support through your website. Yeah, That's sure. the best way just to kind of look to see we'll what- find all the podcast episodes that go into a lot of depth. There's 270 something of those episodes. They're all free. No, no. So yeah. Oh my gosh. Perfect. Okay. I, I have a feeling that there's so many people that would love to hear more from you and actually really just see all of the work that you're doing and go follow Drew, please. Okay. Um, on all streaming platforms, listen to the anxious truth. Um, this was so amazing. I think this is probably one of our longest episodes because oh. I enjoyed talking to you so much. And, that was great. you know, I love this because I learn every day I'm learning and that's like part of this process I love. Um, and great. I'm so happy that your, you know, recovery is amazing and you're doing well and you're teaching other people. So thank you so much for coming on today. Very welcome. Thank you for and having me. I'd love to have you back. I'm trying to get some of our guests on recurring so we can talk about even more in-depth things, which would be great. So we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, let me know. If you need me, let me know. All right. Well, thank cool. you so much, everyone. Follow the Anxiety Chicks um, on Instagram. Follow the Anxiety Healer and Taylor at health underscore anxiety. Um, buy the Anxiety Healer's Guide. You'll find everything in the show notes, y'all. 
and we love you and we'll be back next week. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.